0: From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we're going to hear from Stacy Haas, a McKinsey partner in our Detroit office, who works with consumer companies to drive growth through innovation. Stacy is going to lead us through some fascinating conversations with colleagues and leading entrepreneurs about the lessons larger companies can take from how digital natives and startups innovate quickly. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Over to you, Stacy.
1: Innovation is critical to driving growth, but remains an opportunity for many large consumer companies. Today, we're talking about how large companies can take plays from the startups' playbooks to make them more competitive in our changing world. We're gonna hear from entrepreneurs about the techniques they've used to go to market and scale quickly with limited resources. We'll see how larger companies can emulate some of that behavior to innovate more quickly. We'll also discuss how large companies can leverage what they already do very well and apply it to new growth initiatives. We'll share conversations we had with the people behind the meal kit company, Plated, the performance dress shirt company, Mizzen and & Maine, and the jewelry company, Bobble Bar, as well as Uber. The leaders of these companies told us stories that may at first sound like startup adventures that don't translate to more established companies but we believe they're valuable lessons in their experiences. First though, we'll join a conversation I had recently with my colleagues who specialize in strategy and innovation. Brian Quinn is a partner in our Chicago office and Julie Bashkin is a senior advisor based out of New York. We met in Chicago to discuss the key questions our clients ask us most frequently about how large companies can drive growth through innovation.
2: I'm noticing this issue with clients where they're having a head-slap moment where like, you know, five years ago they were like startups who, you know, we don't, we don't care about them and now they're calling it the bee swarm or sometimes they call them ankle biters or the bee swarm effect where one startup is not a threat but many of them combined are threats and they seem to have come out of nowhere and they seem to be moving fast with no resources and they seem not to be weighed down by the baggage of their own success like mm-hmm. our big clients are.
3: So I think it's been something of a painful lesson for most incumbents to see just how much growth startups have been able to take. So if if you look back over a five or seven year window, despite the top 25 manufacturing, roughly 50% to 40% of the overall category sales volume, they've driven somewhere between two to 5% of the growth. So all of the growth has generally been seeded to startups. So so the first thing is there is something we actually have to learn about what are they doing and what are the ways that they're playing that actually enable them to, to have that kind of success. The biggest thing that makes most startups move really quickly is actually urgency. Literally, they are running on the amount of capital, the amount of funding they have in any given moment, and if they cannot get to a next milestone, either whether that is actually getting to um, enough sales to start self-sustaining the enterprise or get to the next milestone with a venture funder, they're done. And that level of urgency, that degree of fuel to, to move quickly just doesn't exist inside of most uh, large organizations that I've worked with.
1: Before we go on to hear from the startups we talked to, I want to pick up on Brian's point about startups facing urgency with few resources. Those conditions necessitate moving quickly to go to market and scale. Startups have to be creative and scrappy about how to do this. The story we'll hear first from Daniela, the CEO and co-founder of the jewelry company, Bobble Bar, illustrates this well. Daniela worked in investment banking and private equity before starting Bobble Bar in 2011, selling on-trend fashion jewelry through pop-up stores and other methods. And today has multiple brands that are sold through large retailers as well as directly online. Speaking at our Digital Consumer Conference in New York recently, Daniela describes how she and her partner elevated the creativity and scrappiness we're talking about to an art form when they were figuring out channels for selling their jewelry.
4: When we first started in 2011, we were gifting every fashion blogger there was for free, and they were posting about it for free because no one would have ever thought to have asked us for money. We were like, we don't have any. Joke's on you. Um, So, you know, we got a lot of really strong organic placements, a lot of strong organic support, and I think we really. You know, when you don't have money, it's just guerrilla warfare. So, like, Amy and I would literally be everywhere with like bags of jewelry, just like putting it on people. Like, I think you'd like this necklace. And we were just like throwing it at people. I mean, we would do whatever it takes to get it on the right people. Um, And I think that our team was really, really great about thinking through our social strategy and how are we connecting with our community in a way that feels really organic and authentic. And I'm, I'm not going to say that it was necessarily planned that way, because I don't think anybody necessarily planned it that way. But you know, to the point a couple of folks have made up here, we were a really tiny team. It wasn't possible for our social content to go through multiple layers of approval and discussion. And is that the voice? And is that the tone? And is that do so we feel comfortable with that? And we also were not <laughs> a target for legal anything at the time. I mean, we were like 10 people sitting in a room just throwing around jokes. But we were moving really quickly. And, and if we thought something was funny, we put it up on social. And if we thought something was aesthetically beautiful and in line with our visual, we put it up on social and we saw how people reacted. And we just kind of went from there.
1: Next, we'll hear from Uber's general manager, Beth Huddleston. Beth joined Uber's Dallas location and then took on a global role. You might think Uber would be a very different story from Bobble Bar, but the emphasis on making decisions quickly and constantly trying new things are common threads for these and really all startups. Moving quickly for Uber meant making decisions at the local level. At first, this meant the brand wasn't unified across markets, but their rapid growth quickly overcame this. Here's Beth.
5: The way we were organized enabled us to innovate really really quickly. We pushed decision making down to the most local level possible, meaning we had city teams setting prices, negotiating deals with sports teams, you know, like doing all kinds of things that in a much more grown-up organization would rightly be centralized. And and I think that enabled us to get from here to there. What it also created was a situation in which we didn't have one resonant kind of brand voice. We didn't have one consistent customer experience. It created what I call a brand vacuum that then got filled with the six months ago crisis that that was frankly a huge gift for us because it's enabled us to evolve and to see where we needed to grow up because we're a little bit too big to be quite as risk-seeking as we once were. A lot of it's been really, really internal HR processes, things that would not naturally seem as though they would translate directly into customer experience, but we started treating our people better. We started caring for them in a different way and by our people, we also kind of mean our drivers. So that population and and that culture of caring and of looking after people, I think was a pretty significant change from where we were before and has become a very different customer experience for the millions of drivers that are on our platform.
1: The kind of agility you see in those stories from Bobble Bar and Uber is really what so many larger and established companies are trying to do. Brian, Julie, and I also talked about that, so we'll rejoin that conversation now.
2: I think startups, in whatever field they're in, they consider their DNA to be a tech company because they're digitally native or digital first, as opposed to an apparel company or a food manufacturer. Mm. So large multinationals, if they're an apparel company, they consider themselves to be an apparel company. But agility, or, and even the term agile, has now entered the vernacular but it was borrowed from the tech industry and the new entrants in the space don't consider themselves an apparel company, an accessories company. They consider themselves tech companies that are delivering a service.
3: Well, I, I actually think it's ironic that most people actually associate Agile as being a, a digitally native practice. It actually started long before the digital revolution It actually came out of, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Toyota and the Toyota production system and a lot of. Japanese manufacturers started to realize, you know, hey, when we have some of these constructs like kanbans and uh, team rooms and people working, you know, in a tightly integrated way, we end up moving a lot faster than we could otherwise. Mm-hmm. So it's been naturally embraced by digital organizations and has been, you know, very much associated with that. But it, it came out of very analog roots. In our experience, there's no reason that most products actually can't benefit from some of the agile routines, some of the agile ways of working. Certainly, things like consumer products or food and beverage, mm-hmm. which if we're Honest, have meaningful technical challenges and meaningful engineering challenges, but, but not at the level of, for example, designing a new steam locomotive or a new jet engine. I
1: also think we talk about product innovation and how difficult it can be for a large company to create a new product that either is going to cannibalize some portion of their existing portfolio or it's just difficult to create because you need to start it small and really scale it, nurture and scale it to be big over time. When we think about new business models in larger companies, it's almost like a clash of DNA. This concept of what's the identity of the company, right? Am I a product company? Am I a food company? I really think we need to reframe and we're all in the business of solving consumer Mm -hmm. needs and there's a lot of dimensions that can come from. But there's a reality that the way a lot of the bigger companies are set up is just not set to support different business models. And mm-hmm. so we've got to actually create the space for something new and different to kind of live inside of a bigger organization, which is just frankly very hard to do. Stephanie Swingle, chief marketing officer at performance dress shirt company Mizen in Maine, also emphasized the need of established companies to streamline processes. She discussed how critical it is for large companies to become more agile and accelerate the product iteration process to compete with digital natives. Here's Stephanie with a bit more about that.
6: I also think kind of having more nimble processes is critical. The benefit of a large company is that you have so much knowledge and um, talent at your disposal but the flip side to that is often that there's so many layers that you have to maneuver to really make something successful. You have to get alignment through very formal stage gates, through multiple stakeholders, and that can really slow down iteration. If you're waiting for a stage gate meeting that happens once a month and you have to wait until that meeting happens to make an adjustment to your plan or to make a decision on something that's business critical, then that timeline just inherently becomes longer. And so providing that flexibility and that freedom to a core group of people who really are empowered to make those decisions on a more rapid, more fluid basis is just critical to competing with a lot of the more digitally native and smaller companies that are out there today.
1: The downside of speeding up decision-making processes is the potential to increase risk. Josh Hicks, the technology entrepreneur who co-founded the meal kit delivery service Plated, shared his approach to balancing agility with risk by reducing most decisions to a series
7: of small tests. There's this tendency to want to to wait to make the decision. Internally we talk a lot about this idea of making the big decisions small, which is in some ways about trying to manage that risk. Because very few things need to be properly risky. All this is uh, in some ways recycled from other smarter people. Bezos talks a lot about this. Uh, There are very few things that are properly existentially risky to the business. Those things need to be subjected to heavy diligence, to committees, to layers of decision making. Most things you can reduce to small tests that are constructed in ways that are not that risky, especially in companies that have digital practices, which is probably everything these days and certainly things that are digitally native, where I find myself sitting in meetings and sort of providing feedback to team members on the quality of the decision making and pushing them to just go do it, because oftentimes they get hung up on, well, if I do this and if it fails, what, how will it look? And you know, will people say that I didn't ask enough people and so on? Let's regroup tomorrow, and I'm going to talk to some other people. And sometimes I'll wait, and sometimes I don't have the patience for it, and come back to the next meeting and say, look, if you had just gone and launched that feature yesterday, we'd have 10,000 people using it today, and we would have an answer. And if it wasn't working, we'd turn it off. So just do it. And that idea, I think, is not always natural to folks and takes tending in the sort of sense that, you know, to culture is a garden, and you have to just kind of work at it but I do think that that is a challenge to scale as you get bigger and you have people that enter the organization that aren't necessarily as risk-seeking as the people that are crazy enough to join when there's two or five or 10 or 20 people. There's something to the personality type there and something to just the behavior of having a bigger team around you.
1: It's clear that many layers that larger companies have can blur the focus and urgency around decision-making and even make accountability diffuse. Brian spoke to this point of how startups have the advantage of putting all their attention into one product or project.
3: So i back going to this question of what else enables startups to move quickly. One of them is just focus. For better or worse, most startups are betting their livelihoods, you know, and a significant amount of their own capital, be that human or actually financial, on one product, one project. I contrast that with what I run into in a lot of large organizations where you have a project manager, uh, innovation project leader, who's juggling five projects at once Mm -hmm. and juggling a team, a set of teams where each of those team members are juggling somewhere Mm -hmm. between five to seven projects. Mm -hmm. The transaction costs, the friction that creates actually trying to move quickly and make decisions quickly, all of the handoffs that happen when you have that much fragmentation, I think beyond anything I've seen, that is what leads most large organizations to move at a fraction of the pace that they could Mm -hmm. move. And so I hate to get into the buzzword territory of Agile, but there's something to actually higher allocation, whether that's 100% or at a minimum 50%. I've got a dedicated team. They're co-located as much as I can put them together. And we force this notion that they're going to make decisions quickly on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest unlocks to actually moving at the speed that startups often move at. Yeah,
1: I think both both the focus and the accountability or decision-making are critical elements to moving fast because in some of the bigger companies we think about the way decision-making happens. The team itself might have a proposal, but then they've got to get six senior leaders together in a room at the same time. That could be two months from now by the time I can actually make that happen. And that's just, even for some of the smallest decisions, I've got to call someone, got to meet with somebody in supply chain to understand capacity that could be four days from now, which Mm -hmm. is just fundamentally different from what a startup does when the supply chain person is sitting right next to me is the marketing person. We've heard about how established companies can learn from a startup's ability to move quickly, but what about the advantages of scale? Some entrepreneurs we spoke with look to drive scale through strategic partnerships. We'll start with Daniela at Bar, who saw an opportunity to partner with large retailers to build the Bar brand through an event.
4: We actually ended up inviting all of the chief merchants from all of the retailers that we wanted to be inside of. So we invited Nordstrom, we invited Bloomingdale's, we invited the folks that we knew would be a really important part of us building our brand and and building who we are as a company. Shortly after that, we launched our first wholesale relationship with Nordstrom, To this day, they're one of our largest and strongest partners. We love the Nordstrom team. I think they're extraordinary merchants. They understand brands. They work very, very well with brands. And we think of that really as profitable customer acquisition. It's an opportunity for customers to touch and feel the product, interact with it in person, and it's an opportunity for us to do that without having to necessarily invest the extraordinary capital that it would take to really roll out a full retail footprint, and and that's not even counting the resources that you would need to bring in house who would really understand how to do retail properly, which we could do if we wanted to, but that was really the resource light way to do it. Um, so we started with wholesale. We now um, have a thriving wholesale business. Bobble Bar is sold domestically at majors like Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, Shopop, Neiman Marcus soon to be eloquy. Internationally, we are sold at folks like Selfridges, Harvey Nichols, um, Fennec, so so really, really, really large retailers.
1: But not all partnerships are created equal, and the startup has to get value out of the partnership. Even a highly established startup like Uber can struggle with the right partnership model. Listen as Beth Huddleston, Uber's general manager, shares some frustration with us.
5: We really are a B 2 C company, and every time we try to partner with a grown up company, we can't find the right person to talk to them, and it, you know, involves a lot of navigating through different groups. And is, do we actually have a group that does that? You know, it's kind of um, it's a little harder than it should be, and we're working on that. That's kind of something that we're really a big priority for 2018 because we recognize that that's a huge area, particularly of travel and logistics, um, that we need to unlock. Um, some of it has been. So we, we shut down our Uber Rush business recently. Um, that, and that was, that was kind of like our last mile delivery service because we just found that the economics didn't work. I actually don't think that had to do with B2B, uh, a lack of B2B skills. I think that was more to do with until some things change about the economics of that particular um, business or those types of partnerships, it's really hard for us who don't have distribution centers um, to be able to make money on something that people may or may not be willing to pay for. Some of it is we, we beg for patience um, we, as we kind of figure out how to do this. Uh, but other things are, you know, product cycles are a little bit quicker, um, decisions get made a little bit more quickly, and I think, I think we need to evolve as a company um, in order to be good partners to the bigger organizations. I don't know that I have sort of a, a lightning rod piece of advice on how to make those partnerships successful, but I think over time we'll get there.
1: As we just heard, partnerships can be complex, but they can be an effective vehicle to scaling, especially with non-competitive partnerships. Brian, Julie and I discussed how established companies do not necessarily need to perceive startups as simply the enemy, or when the startup is successful, an acquisition target. Julie opens the discussion by reflecting on the value of collaboration between large and small companies.
2: I think a lot of the world is positioned in kind of a binary us versus them. You know, the startups are battling the incumbents. But in reality, there's a lot of collaboration going on. There are a lot of partnerships and joint ventures and, you know, investments and other things that are going on where the large companies are either investing in small or leveraging their capabilities, the smaller companies' capabilities while also lending them their own. So, you know, in my previous life or in my hiatus with McKinsey, I had a startup that had a strategic partnership with Walgreens.com and we essentially drove our traffic our trial our customers who were trialing products from us were purchasing the product on walgreens.com and we were basically comparing the data and seeing how many of the new customers that were buying our products from them were actually new we could use their data to see repeat customer data we could also see what new products they were buying and what other purchases that led to and whether that created lift that partnership was really collaborative and not a competitive one at all because we were each bringing something to the table.
1: Yeah, and maybe one step from that, I think, and let's come back to come back to specifically to the startups, but I think the big CPG should think about partnerships all the way along the development process, and it can be with companies of varying sizes, right? Mm-hmm. From ideation all the way through manufacturing and distribution and having partners all the way along. And it's actually, I think, a huge opportunity when we think about more disruptive innovation. Even if I took just the R&D, product development, or business development process, it's pretty hard. Even a big company that's got a lot of resources, if I'm doing something that's new and different, I don't want to have to... How is all those resources internally? Even it's if like, you could, right? Yeah. It's also
3: the other fallacy, which is all of the people I need in the world actually work for me. It's right. wonderful if that's the case. It's not true for anybody.
1: Yeah, and you mm-hmm. want to put <laughs> and why put all that cost structure on you? It's another way to actually move faster and get the de-risk the innovation is to not take on all of the the cost internally. And so you can find so many people now that can actually help with the product development that aren't a part of your organization so i think companies should think end to end on opportunities to partner and i think startups are a fantastic place to go that Mm -hmm. they don't have to be the the enemy of the big nor do you have to wait until you see that they're successful to go buy them Mm -hmm. right acquire them partnering with them for their technology their product whatever it may be is a huge opportunity
3: Yeah, I actually think sometimes I also see this dichotomy or conflict between what companies think of as their, quote, you know, organic or internal innovation Mm -hmm. engine and their external innovation engine, as opposed to seeing that as all part of one seamless system where at every step I may have the initial inkling of the opportunity. I've identified this Mm -hmm. great valuable problem. I've got an initial concept. The first scan should be actually way before that. Who else is trying to serve that problem? Do we like what they're doing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Are they somebody we could work with? Would that be a faster way for us to actually, again, find a way to serve that consumer versus us trying to vent all of it ourselves and and constantly frame them as competition as opposed to potential allies or
1: or partners? Mm -hmm. Which I think, Brian, you also bring up a, a, I think a really important point or opportunity, particularly for the big companies in the scanning, the world of scanning, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And you you can do it for partnerships. They could also do it for internal development, which is to say, There is often this belief in the big companies that they need to be the first to market
2: Mm -hmm.
1: to be successful, and particularly if they're a category leader, they believe. You know, I've often seen a belief that we have to be the first first to market, and I think we've actually seen what matters the most is the first to scale, and a lot of times actually the market leader, and I think you know our research in a subset of categories would say in the U.S. 80% of the time the market leader in some high growth categories was not the, the one who invented the product. It was a second or third entrant, um, and so this is one of the places, and we'll talk more about where big companies have you know, a real opportunity. They can really see what's going on in the market and follow on a trend pretty quickly mm-hmm. yep. and get that to scale more than some of the startups can.
3: Yep, so long as they can actually embrace some of the things we've talked about in terms of what enables them to move more quickly. Yeah.
1: Brian, Julie, and I also talked about how the economics of partnerships simply have to work and is a point that sometimes gets overlooked.
3: In terms of working with startups, th- this is definitely something I've explored in a, in a number of different contexts, and particularly you get into a type of situation where we're actually doing minor equity investments or we're even trying to do things like creating an incubator and accelerator that we attract startups to. Um, th- the things most startups will time and time and again talk about is access and the right kind of, you know, and sometimes in their language, mm-hmm. curated access. So how do I help navigate this gigantic organization that I'm not familiar with, that I know has tremendously valuable resources to mm-hmm. me? I believe I have something of value to bring to them, but the number of just bureaucratic, administrative and just organizational kind of brick walls I need to run through to do that becomes so frustrating that very often, it, right. you know, nothing productive comes if it comes right. of it. I think it's particularly true if you're actually trying to learn something in terms of a, from a technological perspective, or even a marketing perspective, that we see the startup doing that we want to try to bring inside of our organization. That will not happen naturally. That is a job. Somebody needs to be thinking about okay, how do I actually connect this startup with the right people inside of this organization? Mm. And I'm going to manage that. That is not a natural act, uh, and it's not going to take care of itself.
2: And then on a basic level, I think the economics have to work for everyone, which I know is, sounds like a truism, like of course it has mm. to be true. But you know, we heard from Uber um, that their last mile delivery partnerships did not ultimately work for Uber. So mm. the partners benefited, but Uber didn't make the economics work. And sometimes I think the large companies don't always think about that as well, that if the economics are not sustainable, for the other partner, whether it's a startup or not, yeah. ultimately that relationship will not have longevity.
1: Let's change our perspective now and discuss the advantages big companies have that they can use to innovate. First, we'll hear from Stephanie at Mizzen & Maine, who talks about how big companies have access to extensive consumer insights and also how just being around a larger group of people in established companies can offer an employee experience that's richer in many ways.
6: When we think about the guest room or garage model of incubation, which is what happens when someone's starting from a very scrappy place, they are getting to know their consumers very intimately. So that first customer is is probably a friend of the garage entrepreneur. And so he's getting that direct, um, probably very candid feedback on how the product performs and where the optimization opportunities exist. And I think that that's something that can be carried really well um, into the big company environment, where you're getting those consumer insights very early and very frequently, and also creating the right candid channels for communication. So making sure that you're structuring your insights gathering in a way that create that incentivizes consumers or gives them an open opportunity to give that input. Um, nice. I think another, um, there are a lot of things that I miss being in a large company and. Reporting and capital are two very important ones. But beyond that, I think the investment that companies are making in their people and then just the talent itself that you get exposed to within a large organization are two things that are difficult to replicate when you move over to smaller environments. Those are two very competitive advantages that large companies maintain is having strong leaders and investments in things like training and the scale to make those trainings really incredible. When In past companies I felt very, this sounds like an odd thing to say in a corporate environment, but very cared for. I felt like my career was monitored and attended to not just by me but by my managers and by the leadership of the companies I was a part of. And that was a great feeling and it builds a lot of loyalty. I think it in many cases even offsets some of that economic upside that you can get in a smaller company because you have that emotional connection with the company that you're a part of. I also think just the day-to-day exposure to a really broad group of people is something that's difficult to experience when you're obviously on a smaller team. You learn so much in passing from different people working on different things and having fully-baked functional groups where you can see different experiences and see different work streams. There's the learning piece of that, there's a the cultural piece of that, and then there's honestly the um, activation piece of that. It's I think this was mentioned on the panel but having just resource capital from a labor perspective, from an employees willing to kind of roll up their sleeves and do something, having that available to you to chase different opportunities is something that's so valuable. And when you make the move over to a smaller company, you realize how good you had it with kind of full teams of people who are able, to, able and willing to deploy for the right priorities.
1: Large companies also have access to resources that most startups can only dream about. Here's Daniela from BabelBar discussing the benefits of a large resource pool with Stephanie from Mizzen & Maine.
4: I think that there are a lot of things that, that large companies have that, that we don't have. Obviously, resources and capital would, would be the obvious one. Um, I think connections, I think the ability to get in touch with like-minded folks kind of across their industry at larger scale, people who really have experience. I think one thing we all know as entrepreneurs is our general rule of thumb is just try it, see what happens, figure out what you broke, and then don't ever repeat that decision ever again. But I think the more that you can learn from folks with experience, the better. I mean, I can say one of the things that we've learned so much from is, is working alongside larger retailers. The learnings that we've taken away from some of the merchants that we work with are through the roof. They've just been there, they've seen it, they've done it, and there's, there's so much that you can take away from experience. And then I think the question is, how do you marry that with remaining nimble, still moving quickly, still being willing to experiment and try and not being afraid of the result? And I think marrying the two together is kind of where you have magic.
6: I really miss the reporting. Um, It sounds like a silly thing, but I miss having media reports, I miss having market reports, and I miss having the access to knowledge capital that you do when you're in a large organization, both internally and externally with a lot of the consulting partners and the agency partners. Those are things that I dream about and I I do really miss. But on the flip side, to Daniela's point, um, there can be a decision paralysis that comes out of that. So it's really important to balance that agility and that nimbleness and the willingness to take risks despite um, sometimes data not being totally conclusive or not, you know, full picture.
1: To Daniela and Stephanie's point about institutional knowledge, some of the advantages big companies have are more cultural or intangible, like their history and access to connections. Brian, Julie, and I talked about this.
3: Well, I, I do think some uh, one uh, asset that a lot of large organizations have is just the history they have in the category. And I think, you know, as much as that can sometimes... Lead to kind of you know conventional wisdom and stale thinking setting in. It also can be this enormous treasure trove of actually having tracked what worked, what didn't work, mm-hmm. why didn't it work. I think I think if those organizations can get more disciplined around post mortems and sort of tracking that over time and making yeah. that that institutional knowledge accessible by everybody in the organization, as opposed to embedded in the hearts and heads of people who've been there for thirty years, mm-hmm. that could be a massive advantage. That I, again, I don't see well documented in lots
2: of mm-hmm. places. Startups always talk about how Coke can go call the Walmart chief merchant, and they can't. And whether or not that's true and it's a perception, perception is reality because when you feel like the small guy, you start doing things on a smaller scale. When you feel like the big guy, you should be doing things on the bigger scale, right? Yeah, Yeah, there's no doubt that the big companies
1: have a tremendous amount of access. There's a lot of doors that, that will open for them. What I think is they've got to actually do it, I think they know how to open the big doors, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the Walmart merchant that you mentioned. I think it's actually difficult for them to open the smaller doors, which are some of the partnerships potentially with the startups and mm-hmm. others that can create value because the, the work that's required to go understand all of those smaller potential opportunities it, it, it just is real work, right? And you mm-hmm. do need to allocate resources to do it. I think economics more broadly is a big question and, and topic because it, it, for me it's one of the biggest stumbling blocks I see on the big companies and what separates them from uh, some of the startups is actually the, the broader economics of, of innovation. And I think there's this disconnect between what is often the aspiration of what innovation will deliver and the economics, particularly in the early years of an mm-hmm. innovation that drives a lot of the challenges that big companies actually have. And I've seen a number of companies where the metric for uh, uh, innovation is accretive gross margin from day one. Well. You will never create anything disruptive right. if that's the metric by which you're going to yep. measure an innovation. But the big companies have a reality. Like, there is a reality. Most of them are public. They have EBIT targets they have to hit. There's a real issue there to solve. And so you've got to be driving cost reduction in other places thinking carefully about how you again de-risk innovation, match the investment to the stage that it's at, so that you can drive the longer term growth of the business, but without putting at risk the near term financials. We hope the insights from these entrepreneurs and our McKinsey experts provide you with ideas about how to win with innovation. You can find more information from our innovation practice at McKinsey.com, where you can also find our article, From Lab to Leader.
0: That's all from inside the strategy room. Thanks again for joining us. And you can find the edited transcript of this podcast on McKinsey.com and on our Insights app. And be sure to connect with us there and on LinkedIn and Twitter.